Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. I'm sitting here with Brother Amos and Brother Makeru. We were speaking of sports earlier before the show. Clearly, I think it's criminal for a billionaire owner to ask taxpayers to build a stadium for him. I'm reminded of the situation in New Orleans during the Katrina catastrophe, which was nothing more than the bottom of a slave ship and all of the fanfare given to the New Orleans Saints. Now, this is a town that was unable to build uh, an up-to-date levy. And you had the taxpayers in that situation subsidizing their practice facility in Metairie, Louisiana. The price that the Saints paid was $2 a year. The rest subsidized by the taxpayers of New Orleans, all in the name of civic pride. Got a lot to talk about. Uh, Jamil Abdullah El Amin, a.k.a. H-Rap Brown, I remember vividly when this brother intoned on national television that we stand on the eve of a black revolution because he would later be arrested for the riot act, I believe, in Maryland. He ran into COINTELPRO as the leader of SNCC, converted to Islam, was living a quiet life, on the west end of Atlanta, entrepreneur, where the harassment of the federal government continued. And then, of course, lastly, we'll be talking about uh, the overthrow of various secular states. We're talking about, in particular, Libya, uh, Iraq, these countries that were invaded by Western imperialists will never come back. Suffice it to say that nature abhors a vacuum, and into this vacuum you will find various elements that keep that particular area unstable. Brothers, take it wherever you want to take it. Bibi Fahodier, African family, this is uh, a day in which we saw a, got some news regarding uh, our brother, Jamil El Amin, the imam Jamil El Amin, who was formerly known as H. Rap Brown. Certainly a person who inspired me. You know, I was thinking about the fact that the African world, particularly the African continent, has uh, such a uh, heavy population of young people. And I was thinking about our youth. You know, people are always saying the youth are our future, but they don't necessarily have to be. It depends on what influences them. For me, I was, I could look out as a young person, I could look out and see a Stokely Carmichael. Then, no, yeah, Stokely Carmichael. Kwame Ture now, uh, you know, when he was, when he deceased, but he was then known as Stokely Carmichael, calling for black power. I could see a H. Rap Brown. I could see a, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and members of the Black Panther Party, I could see people that that were models for me, that were that were very inspiring. And what do our youth today have to look at for models? And I think this is part of the reason why these uh, brothers and sisters that were in these organizations that that moved the civil rights movement into the arenas of black liberation and black power because they saw them as such a severe threat to the white power structure because of their capacity to influence younger people, you know, like myself. Clearly, I would not, without Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, the Black Panther Party, I don't know that I would have ever moved in this direction. I don't know that I don't know that I would have seen anything that that inspired me to to become involved 
And so when we look at our youth today, what do they see? They have athletes and entertainers, hmm. right? I mean, that's I mean that's basically what they that's basically what they identify with: athletes and entertainers. So I was I was when I when I read the story today that um, a federal appeals judge had ruled, I think back in I think it was May, April or May, that he should be entitled. Uh, to a his case should be reviewed because she 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 said this particular judge said that that uh, the prosecutor violated brother Jamil's constitutional rights when he was on trial for allegedly killing uh, two black deputies for for some strange reason went to arrest him at night for a traffic violation this is just so you know he had a failure to appear this is one of the most high-profile uh, activists, you know, in the black world, you know, working, you know, to build the West End community of Atlanta economically. And the two deputies were killed by someone. And they charged our brother with the killing of these deputies. And he was, he was charged and he was convicted in a state court. And then <clears throat> he was transferred into the federal prison system because they didn't want him in it in uh in the state prison system. So they sent him to a uh, Florence ADX. Uh, I guess the most highly uh maximum security prison in, in the in the United States or maybe in the whole world. And so his lawyers, his lawyers uh, have been trying to get this appeal heard. And today, uh, was, it wasn't today, it was one day earlier, uh, this week or last week, where a three-judge panel ruled. Now, this is incredible to me. You, you're talking about the law. The three-judge panel ruled that, that the prosecutor violated Brother Jamil's constitutional rights. But... That didn't influence the outcome of the trial. I mean, if that isn't absurd, what is? So you 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 admit it. You you admit it that the, that the that the prosecutor violated his rights, and then you turn around and say, but the violation didn't influence the outcome of the trial. I mean, that just uh, you know that's why we always say at African Liberation Media that the rule of law in the United States has little to do with justice. It more has, has to do with who has the power to make the rules. And in the case of someone like Jamil El Amin H. Rap Brown, a man who has been under, under attack by the United States government since 1967, he, here's a man who got shot by the police in Cambridge, Maryland. And he got charged with inciting a riot. And when they were having his trial uh, three years later in 1970, a car that he was supposed to be riding in, it was driven by two brothers, one of them one of the most courageous brothers in the history of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother Ralph Featherstone, and another brother named Shea Payne. I remember uh, one of my uh, educators, one of my Mashari Cleve Sellers, uh, yeah, telling me a story about uh, some of the events that they endured, uh, had to deal with in the Mississippi Delta during Freedom Summer. And uh, Cleve said he was on the phone with Ralph Featherstone. So the, the way these guys did, they everybody had a particular district. So somebody might be working in Sunflower County and, you know, uh, somebody might be in Greenwood, Greenville, Cleveland, all of these uh, cities in, in the Mississippi Delta. And so... Uh, Featherstone told Cleve said uh, the night riders of the Ku Klux Klan are riding by shooting in the house and so Cleve asked Feather say what are you doing he said we shooting back <laughs> said we shooting back at him but anyway uh, when Rap was on trial in Cambridge well the trial wasn't in Cambridge but it, it was related to the Cambridge incident I think it was in Bel Air Maryland uh, the car that he was supposed to be in blew up. I mean, this was a massive explosion. It killed Ralph Featherstone and Shea Payne. And Rap went underground. FBI put him on their 10 most wanted list. 
while he was underground, he organized, he, 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 he went to uh, New York, and he organized the H. Rap Brown anti-dope campaign. So here's a brother being wanted by the FBI, and he's cleaning up the community. They were confronting drug dealers and telling them, you got to shut your operations down. You can't deal drugs in this community. I think they were working in Brooklyn or somewhere. And that's how he eventually got caught and got sent to Attica. But, I mean, since 1967, this man has been under attack by the United States government. And even today, he is considered so much of a threat. I think the brother is 75 today, maybe 76, somewhere in that neighborhood. They will not allow anyone to even interview. He cannot have any outside communication with any media or anybody. Even today. You know, he's in a federal prison now in uh, Tucson, Arizona. So, you know, that that uh, that news came across. Uh, I think it happened a few, a, a few days ago, but I just uh, found out about it today. And I posted it on our Facebook page, African Liberation Media Facebook page. But it just it just it just goes to show, you know, the 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 intense uh, when it when it comes to us. When it comes to us, anyone they might consider to be a black revolutionary, a black liberationist or whatever, they leave nothing to chance. I, I told somebody back in 2001, I say if we had if, if it had been 19 of us learning to fly uh, these uh Passenger aircraft, 737s and you know, those types of they, those types of aircraft, 767s. We never would have gotten off the ground. We never much less fly some planes into some buildings in New York. We never would have gotten off the ground. I mean, that's how they were watching us, you know, like a hawk watching chickens. But other people could do it, even though, you know, the whole thing probably was an inside job. Uh, for whatever reason, a number of reasons, obviously. But um, that, that was just some of the things I was thinking about, particularly, uh, you know, for me personally, what what an inspiration this brother was. And I was just thinking about this, you know, when I was on the way over here, how I had those brothers to look up to, brothers and sisters, you know, dynamic sisters and, you know, dressed in their panther regalia and just beautiful afros and and, you know, it was so inspiring, and I'm looking at these young people today, and what do they have to look at in terms of something that's going to bring about meaningful change, you know, other than, uh, you know, trying to, um, you know, do something individually for yourself. Brother had tremendous oratorical skills, thus the nickname Rap. Southern University, tremendous athlete, basketball player, I understand. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, the threat, the black liberation thrust posed during that time. I think it was around April 1967 when uh, J. Edgar Hoover, brothers, you say, Mary at Night, dispatched a memo, point one, the need to stop the rise of a black messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. And the second point was to discredit brothers like rap in the eyes of the respectable Negro community, respectable black community in the eyes of white liberals. And the third point was the Negro youth. You uh, made mention of the youth and the lack of connectedness between the visible um, uh, I think the term you use, brother, is uh, celebrities, hmm. uh, unconscious celebrities. But back then we had real activism. But uh, to finish my point, stop the rise of the black messiah. We talked about um, the discrediting of black leadership. And the third point was that the black youth have to be convinced that if they succumb to nationalist ideology, they will be killed. I think in that report it read neutralized. Neutralized, that's neutralized. right. Neutralized. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, and we, we can say the same thing today. I mean, on this show we talked about uh, many of the activists in Ferguson 
you know, who died tragically. Uh, there are some young brothers who saw this kind of potential mm -hmm. in Tupac Shakur. And uh, I mean, I didn't really didn't have an inkling as to who Tupac was, you know, until you know the late '80s, you know, when I was in public education. I didn't really know a lot about him, Masada, of course, and Nafini, but not a whole lot about Tupac. Uh, there are people out there, you know, in the '30s, and '20s, you know, who insist that the death of Tupac, in a real sense, was an assassination, and uh, he had. Uh, great potential to reach out and to politicize uh, the youth. But this type of um, liquidation of our serious activists who are not only charismatic but speak in the tone of the community, of the youth, going all the way back to Bunchy Carter and, of course, you know, the most notable Fred Hampton, uh, Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, this brother was uh, actually trying to form some type of linkage between uh, people in the inner cities uh, who were in the headed for, uh, toward dire straits as well as hillbillies in western um, West Virginia. You know, and at that point he was assassinated. Um, he had this type of ability to uh, reach uh, what the Black Panther Party referred to as the lumping. And uh, this potential merger between uh, the Black Panther Party as the administrative head and the Blackstone Rangers, later the L. Rookins, definitely posed a threat uh, to the Lords of Capital because of the the strength in numbers and more uh, specifically the ideology that uh, that they espoused. Um, go ahead. Sir. Well, Jack, you definitely said a lot. And I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here listening to everything that you were saying. And it really made me think about in today's times and also what you said about, about the role models that are out there now there really isn't a strong voice. Now, you mentioned Pop, and a lot of people criticize Pop because they say that he, you know, wasn't all the way conscious, but it's not really about that all the time. Sometimes you need a real voice who's bold enough and strong enough to speak in the opposition of the normal ways of society. And when I look at those brothers who were in the Black Liberation Army and the brothers who were in the Panthers, they were able to speak truth to power no matter what the opposition thought or no matter what the opposition uh, was doing at the time. They were not afraid to step out there and be bold and be different. And those voices are definitely missing from at least popular popularity-wise, they're missing from the masses of black people. A voice like a Dr. Colin Muhammad, you know, we can only imagine what he would be saying in the days of Donald Trump now. <laughs> Uncompromising, the, brother. With the popularity that that bold black man had. We can only imagine what Tupac would be saying, uh, you know, in these times. And then when you look to, you know, someone like a, uh, a Colin Kaepernick who was put on a pedestal because of his willingness to take a knee, even when Kaepernick speaks, his voice is not the voice of an electrifying machine that's going to uh, give the people that jolt of energy to make them act. So when the court systems say that they're afraid of H. Rap Brown, because he is a security threat, they're afraid of him being interviewed. This shows the white person's biggest fear is the uprising of black people on a liberation level. We're willing to do anything, like Malcolm said, anything necessary that it takes to become free. They know that H. Rap Brown, even right now, can speak in his speeches, 
even through interview, will transform the minds of people that's out here right now. Brother, he caught me at age 11. You know, I can almost remember it verbatim, you know, the rebellions that we see in Newark and East L.A. are just a dress rehearsal for the revolution that's to come. And it's the same with, uh, like you said, with Fred Hampton. He was a bold black man that stood up and was willing to, to speak. He was electrifying. And that is a threat to the European power structure because they know, as Dr. Collier used to always say, black people are people of rhythm and spirit. And they know that when someone comes along and they have the rhythm and the spirit to wake our people up, see, it's one thing to learn a lot of information. And I was talking to Bob Walker about this, or it might have been somebody else I was talking to about this on the phone. And I was talking about now you have people that give lectures and in these lectures, they'll give out a lot of information, but the people don't leave transformed. Mm. You see, when I went to a lecture before I was where I am now, what got me to want to get into this was when somebody woke my spirit up. Somebody said the right words and put me on the right path to fight for African liberation. And this is what Europeans know can still happen. Mm -hmm. So those brothers that have that capability to do that, and sisters, the sisters that also have that capability to do that, to speak in an electrifying manner that speaks to the heart and soul and the spirit of liberation in the African people, that is the dangerous spirit that, as Jacob Carruthers called the spirit of the irritated genie, mm -hmm. that they don't want us to possess because they know if we possess that spirit, then we'll do anything. If, if, if our people really knew and understood everything that our ancestors went through, it's no way that collectively we would be able to exist like we exist amongst whites in this society right now. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and, and, and the thing that that we, the, we, 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 we're not sitting here saying that we know everything and everybody. I, I'm sure that there are, there are some people out there somewhere. I mean, you know, you do have, you know, people like David Banner, for example, speaking out and, you know, and some others. But... But by and large, by and large, all of the focus uh, of our youth, by and large, is on entertainers because the United States uh, un understands the art of propaganda. The power structure understands propaganda. They understand how to manipulate. Um, Dr. Amos Wilson called it the production of desire and uh, creating dreams without means. And of course, a lot of this, you know, uh, people direct their energy into where they see they can make money. And uh, consequently, you know, that oftentimes leads to uh, more conflict within within the community. And then when when there when there possibly is a very strong young voice that may have potential like Brother Darren Seals of Ferguson, Missouri. He's mysteriously killed, along with several other activists down there. And so a lot of our youth, the only models they see are entertainers or athletes. So that's where their energy goes into producing. You know, there was a mass shooting in Philadelphia. The mass shooting uh, happened last Sunday, about 20 minutes before the mass shooting in uh in California at the Garlic Festival. Now, the, Cal the California shooting got major, major, major news coverage in the corporate media. The Philadelphia shooting barely got a blip. And during this shooting, um, one brother was killed and then five were wounded. And the, the brother that was killed, actually, uh, his last name was Wade, W-E-A-H, but he was trying to be a rapper, <laughs> and his his rap name was uh, Bankroll Gambino. Bankroll Gambino. So, I mean, you you'll see you'll see a lot of our people taking names uh, from people that were like 
you know, gangsters and hoodlums, you know, people like will be named Capone. Gambino obviously is, uh, you know, one of the uh, top um, mafia crime families. Scarface. Scarface, you know, uh, uh, Carlo Gambino was the Don of Dons, uh, probably the most successful Don after, you know, they deported uh, Lucky Luciano. You know, he took over the, the Luciano family. And, and 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 so and so you see a lot of this. So so this young brother uh, th that was killed in in, in Philly. I, he was either twenty one or twenty three. I can't remember now. But they were they were setting up to do a uh, a video. They 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 were getting ready to shoot a music video in the community. So they had a big crowd of people out there. And apparently he had some some kind of beef going on. Now, this brother actually, uh, his family migrated to the United States from Liberia when he was six years old. And uh, he was shot in the head and, mm. and killed. Um, who knows? Because, because a lot of times you know, the way this industry has been developed, you know, and you can go back to, uh, you know, uh, to the conflict with between Easy E and Suge Knight and all, a lot of times you know the the the, the so-called uh, manufactured conflict between Tupac and Biggie, I mean a, a lot of times what you have is you know these guys are trashing one another, and the solution to that is to is to have a drive-by shooting. So that's why you see so many people in this industry, you know, being killed or, you know, put in jail or whatever. And I mean, it's just it's it's, it's a destruction. But once again, why are so many of our youth moving in in, in this direction? Because they've seen, you know, Jay Z's a billionaire, uh, Sean Combs is a billionaire, you know, uh, Kanye Crazy is you know about to be a billionaire, whatever. And so th these guys, they become the models, you know, for them to emulate. And so that's, you know, that's, you know, that's where they look. And, you know, our, our people are still under a microscope, believe me. COINTELPRO may not be here, you know. J. Edgar by day, Mary by night is burning in hell if hell exists. But the mentality is the same. And so... Like I said, going back to the 9-11 thing, they leave nothing to chance when it comes to us. And the thing about it, too, is that at, in those times, the fire in the kitchen was a lot hotter. And what I mean by that is for the general masses of people who don't really understand the war that we're in and what we're up against or what we've been through, they think that the American dream is a reality. Mm the capitalistic dream of making money. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with, you know, making your money. But in those times, during, you know, the 60s, the 50s, going all the way back to the early 1900s, there was less distraction around whether or not whites like black people. <laughs> now, you know, it's easy for uh, a black person to be friends with a white person in public or to date a white person to integrate with white people and all is that in the third. Versus in those times, the fire was hot. Now to us, right now, because the knowledge we have, the fire is still hot. You know, we still see brothers and sisters being killed on a daily basis, still being lynched. We still see uh, racism still happening right before our eyes. And we continue to speak up about it, talk about it, but for a lot of people, they don't see it. They don't see it. Now, now it, it, it was publicized heavily since the killing of Trayvon Martin. And you had a lot of news networks. Of course, they switched, they've switched over to covering Donald Trump now. But during the end of the Obama administration, they were showing a lot of police killings all over the country. And this is probably the first time for a lot of people that are my age and younger for them to really experience, quote unquote, racism, mm -hmm. you see, so right, so so the the climate and the temperature is not as hot as it was to produce those type of brothers that are willing to stand up and fight. Mm -hmm. 
right now we're in the minority. Mm-hmm. But I want to go to another point. Um, I'm gonna play a clip, and I want you to listen to this. Uh, Cause me and some of my friends, we we joke about this clip all the time. Uh, you know, when we having conversations, we're gonna go back to. There was a football coach who made this statement uh, years ago. I'm gonna go ahead and play this clip for you. But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. Now, some of you may say, "Why are you playing that, brother?" Almost. Well, this week. It was an audio clip release of President Ronald Reagan's conversation with Richard Nixon. (laughs) Now, we've been telling you about Ronald Reagan for years. Years. We talked about how he invaded Grenada. Mm -hmm. We talked about his role with the Contras. We talked about his role with the war on drugs and the crack epidemic in the black community. We talked about Ronald Reagan being overtly racist and not wanting to help brothers and sisters in South Africa doing apartheid. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who are Ronald Reagan apologists, I want you to listen to this clip and what he said when he spoke about how he felt about leaders in Africa this past week. And last night I tell you to watch that thing on television as I, as I did. Yeah. To see those... kind of bad the source that I pulled from but if you didn't hear what Ronald Reagan said when he was referring to African leaders he called them monkeys he said all of those monkeys from those African countries damn it they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes Mm -hmm. directly from the president of the United States now he wasn't the president at the time but he's talking to Richard Nixon who was a president, and later he would become the president. So you, you, you have two former presidents of the United States that are outrightly racist, making racist remarks towards how they feel about African leaders. And this happened to be recorded on tape. Now, this tape was discovered prior to 2003, but the courts refused to release it because they said, you know, it would affect Ronald Reagan's privacy. <laughs> so when he died in 2004, then later on, they finally released it and they had to go through an archival process, a chronological order process before they can finally release it now. Mm. So there's a historian who came across this audio and bought this clip out. And of course, you know, no major media coverage at all to really cover this. Once again, you know, I don't see this on CNN. You're still talking about Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is nothing more than a reflection of what all of the U.S. presidents thought and said about black people. He, he just has the brass to step up and say it in public. So the Bill Clintons, the George Bushes, the Ronald Reagans, the Richard Nixons, the Dwight Eisenhowers, the Harry Trumans, all of these guys operate within the same rules and regulations of operation when it comes to upholding the United States and the white power structure. (laughs) And how they feel about keeping black people subdued and oppressed is all the same. Even your favorite black president, Barack Obama, His role was to make sure that he upheld the United States and the white power structure. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So by default, you have to take on the attitude that you're against black people, hmm. which is why he never did anything in favor for black people as he did for the LGBTQ community and, of course, you know, the rich capitalistic corporations that he bailed out, you know, when he bailed out the banks in 2008 and so forth, but Protection Acts for Monsanto and all other things that he did. He did kill African people, though, when he bombed, you know, Africa through all of the drone strikes. But this is just another example of we told you so. Mm-hmm. And we continue to tell you so. And one day, for those who are listening and those who love Obama, uh. it'll come out again, his role in the destruction of African people, mm. and we'll be saying, I told you so again. Yeah, he, he did his share of dog whistling, but uh, it'll try to connect the dots. This is one thing that H. Rap Brown told us in an interview many years ago that Anybody who sits in the Oval Office is going to have to uh, respond to the mandates of the system. I'm trying to quote him verbatim. Uh, The system mandates the the individual. But, brother, you were talking about uh, the desire to keep Africans powerless. I also have a vivid image of a ray gun, the human weapon on national TV being terrified as a result of black men uh, marching on the state capitol. Once again, we're talking about the hypocrisy of the system in two different rules. Hmm. All of a sudden, you know, they want to keep us disarmed, but carrying a gun uh, or getting or receiving one's man cred is supposed to be the exclusive privileges of the white man, see? And, and, and here's the sad thing about it, brother, in Lincoln County. See, they will never admit uh, how proximity or the availability of gun is closely associated with the suicides that are taking place in these uh, rural areas. You know, I mean, with us, it's homicide, but with them, you know, it's death by rifle. It's a death. They're not going to make that um, admission. Right. And as I stated, Ronald Reagan, he refused to condemn the British, for their role in apartheid in South Africa. Now, I want you to listen to what his daughter said when the tapes came out. So now, you know, they're trying to clean up his image. Whitewash it. So they're going to his daughter to see how she feels about these tapes. So she said that she cried when she, re- when she heard the audio. What? And she said that there is no defense, no rationalization, no suitable explanation for what my father said on the tape phone conversation. Well, brother, it must be catching because George Wallace's daughter, a granddaughter, you know, I can't recall where I read this, admitted that uh, this joker they got in the White House was actually worse than the notorious George Corley Pompadour uh, Wallace of the 60s, you know, one of the most notorious racists out of Clio, uh, Barbara County, Alabama. Right. And so, they, like you said, they're trying, to, they're trying to whitewash his legacy. Now, it goes on to say that she said, when I was growing up, bigotry and racism were addressed in my family by making it clear that these were toxic and sinister beliefs that should always be called out and shunned. I don't believe that. Rhetorical for, ethic, brother. A second. <laughs> that's the, that's that's just nothing but the rhetorical ethic. That's I mean that's a, you know that's uh, you know as Dr. Morimbani pointed out in her, uh, you know seminal work in analyzing the um, the the psychology of the of, of the European you know Yorugu. Uh, culturally structured thought of the of the of European people. I mean, now this is this is the final touch, though. And see, this is how they always mess with the minds oh, of Lord. people. She says, "I believe if my father, years after the fact, had heard this tape, he would have asked for forgiveness." Yeah, right. He would have said, "I deeply regret what I said, and that's not who I am." Yeah. 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 I, you know, he he he'll probably he'll probably come out of the grave and 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 haunt her at night for telling those lies. Uh, 
That's that, that's just like the 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 slave monster, or who y'all call a slave master, who would be on the plantation and on his deathbed, he would finally ask for forgiveness. Right. No. After I didn't raped all the women I can rape. Yeah. After I didn't exploited all of the free labor that I can exploit. Now, in my final breath, I'll just say I'm sorry. Yeah, this guy wouldn't. I mean, he was sorry for nothing. I mean, you know, this guy, uh, he he really and truly um, launched the uh, attack on the Black Panther Party. Okay, so you know, you have you have you have to start there in terms of um, in terms of his uh, in terms of his activities against uh, black people, the Black Liberation Movement. I mean, in, in addition to you know, all of the other laws and things that, uh, you know, he tried to, you know, he got in place while he was the governor of California. And I think when he was having that conversation with Nixon, uh, he was the governor of, of California. Uh, this is a guy who launched his presidential campaign mm. in uh, Neshoba County, Mississippi, Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers were killed in 1964. And so uh, they... They 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 talked to one another in that language, calling he was referring to African delegates at the UN, right? Because a lot of African countries, uh, you know, had become independent. Uh, let's see, if they were having this conversation, maybe in 1968 or 69. I don't know when they were having the conversation, but a lot of African countries had gained their quote unquote independence uh, and were now represented at the UN. And so he's referring to these Africans uh, at the UN as, as monkeys. So these are the kind of conversations that they have when they're talking to one another. I, I remember uh, a conversation, uh, you know, with uh, a white guy and uh, he was a member of a country club and he was saying that, man, when you, when these people sit around at the country club and, they get about three or four shots of Jack Daniels. The N-word is flying out of their mouths, men and women, right and left. But when they get in public, they camouflage that. And so they, 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 they send out symbolic messages or dog whistles. Mm. And Reagan's symbolic message to the white supremacy dynamic was... By choosing Philadelphia, Mississippi, a place where certainly some of the most heinous crimes of the civil rights era took place, uh, obviously the, Birmingham, the, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham was, I don't think anything compares to that when you, when you kill four little girls in, their, in, in, their, in Sunday school and then you blind uh the sister of one of them, and then two other young black males get killed during the process, one by the by the Boy Scouts and one by the police, who I guess could be one and the same. But, but, but by going to Philadelphia, Mississippi, to launch his presidential campaign, he was sending a clear message to the raw elements of the white supremacy dynamic is that, that we're getting ready to roll back this civil rights agenda. We're getting ready to we getting we we getting ready to turn this thing around and 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 wipe these gains out because these laws that have been made they can be overturned. And of course, we have to remember that Reagan launched his war on drugs. Nixon uh, Nixon launched the first war on drugs, and there's a conversation between Richard Nixon and John Ehrlichman where they are actually discussing how they're going to execute the war on drugs, who they're going to target. You know, the white hippies in the, in the uh, anti-war, anti-Vietnam war movement and, you know, the black community in general were going to be the targets. But Ronald, Ronald Reagan announced his war on drugs before, before crack cocaine actually burst onto the scene in Southern California, delivered by the CIA to help fund the war against uh, uh, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And, you know, they got people like Freeway Ricky Ross and others 
to, you know, become their merchants on the street. And this was carried out by the United States government. Mm. Reagan announces a war on uh, drugs and then crack cocaine suddenly appears. I mean, because it was originally announced by Nixon. The, uh, Nixon Nixon announced it uh, in, I think, 1969. And what fueled that particular war on drugs was the fact that heroin was being flooded in the community from uh, the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia. And a lot, of, a lot of the heroin was coming back into the United States on U.S. military airplanes. Some of it was flying right in to uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base down in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And there was a there was a uh, U.S. Army sergeant by the name of Ike Atkinson, who became known as Sergeant Smack. And he's one of he's one of the guys. That if you if you remember the movie um, American Gangster, American Gangster, where, you know, uh, Frank, Fra Lucas. Frank Lucas is kind of, you know, playing the role of like, you know, Sergeant Smack to uh, to go over there and and get the heroin and, and, and bring it back. So the her they, they first hit us with the heroin. Now now the the mafia was all had already decided because the, the scene from The Godfather is most likely actual history where they decided that they were going to flood our community with heroin. That heroin was coming out of Afghanistan through France. They called it the French Connection. In fact there's a movie called The French Connection. So they they first hit us with the heroin, then they hit us with the crack cocaine. And that and that was done under the Reagan administration, operated right out of his out of his uh, administration there with you know Oliver North, and uh, George uh, Bush uh, the, the 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 first Bush, so 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 these people are clearly at war with African people and it, and every now and then how they really feel actually emerges, you know, from uh, from the grave or wherever. And then everybody tries to run for cover and, you know, make all kinds of excuses, uh, the incessant search for scapegoats, rationalizations, right? Uh, I have a lot of black friends. Yeah, and, and all of that. Same, same thing, you know, uh, Trump is saying now about Al Sharpton. Oh, <laughs> my know, God. You know, how, how, how tight he and Al were, you know, back in – Back in the day, so... Um, Did you take notice to Trump's tweet about the police officers in New York getting water thrown at them or shot at? Or, um, I didn't see that one. So Donald Trump sent a tweet out, and he was calling out uh, Mayor de Blasio, mm -hmm. saying that it's a disgrace that the police officers who are in New York get treated like this. I guess these young teenagers were throwing water on them. Mm -hmm. while they was on active duty, mm -hmm. right? And so this is another reason why you can never appeal to trying to teach white people about your condition. Mm. Because notice how he he tweeted about these police officers getting wet by these, by these teenagers. He didn't say a damn thing about that security guard pulling that gun on that deputy sheriff. No. Mm -hmm. No, he didn't say anything about. <laughs> he didn't come out and say, you know, this is a disgrace. Right. That a security guard would pull a gun out on a, uh, a deputy sheriff. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he's not going to say it. And hey, you know what? I don't blame him for not saying it. Because if I was him, I wouldn't say it either. And that's the mentality we got to have. Yeah, exactly. We got to have the mentality that we're not looking for no empathy. From nobody. I'd rather I'd rather for them to speak the truth. Exactly. I mean, tell 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 us exactly how you feel. I mean, it's you know, it's uh, we it, just pointed out so you will know what's going on. Yeah, it's it's but it, I can it, care it's less. More, you know, it's more valuable to us. Um, just a couple of things. Um, you know, we may not have time to to totally get into, but um, the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was apparently invited to Ghana. As part of the uh, observ observation of the uh, 400 years that uh, that Africans have, have have been, you know, in the United States, and she carried, I think, 12 members of the Congressional Black Caucus with her. How ironic! And uh, 
she went over there and get, they, they, they invited her to give a speech to the uh, Ghana Parliament, and she was talking about all of these things that uh, that they were that they were interested in doing to uh, to uplift Africans, and then then she went to a Cape Coast uh, castle and talking about what a moving experience it was, and we can never allow this to happen again, and it's actually happening right now. Uh, you know, yeah, thanks to Barack Obama, who all of them, you know, supported. Uh, but, but, you know, you know, we classified this uh, as as being the rhetorical ethic, you know, which, which is language that is purely designed for the consumption of others. And 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 the amazing thing to me is, and you know, I mean, we we talk about it here all the time. You know, how can our people not see through this? How can our people not see the hypocrisy between what these people say and what they actually do? I mean, first of all, Nancy Pelosi shouldn't even be invited to Africa. I mean, if Barbara Lee and Ilhan, Ilhan Omar is from Somalia, if they want to return, she want to return home, I mean, fine, you know, Um they were the only two members of the uh, of Pelosi's delegation that actually voted against the $733 billion 2020 National Defense Authorization Act. Um, but what was very interesting is this. The day before they went to Ghana, they visited the headquarters of the U.S. Army Africa Command in uh in in uh Italy, U.S. Army Africa, which 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 uh you know is known as Africom, the Africa Command, and back in February, Ghana, the the government of Ghana gave Africom access to land in Accra to use uh, an air base as a logistics hub for their operations in West Africa. They have a warehouse in Accra where they store materials, weapons, tanks, all these kinds of things. And they said that uh, they are operating in about 13 to 16 countries in West Africa and they're using Ghana as a logistics hub to get the supplies to uh, the U.S. Army troops that are operating in other locations in West Africa. So in my opinion, in my opinion, Ghana is making a lot of noise. A lot of people are excited about Ghana because they say we're welcoming, you know, Africans to come back and whatnot. I think Ghana is being set up to be the beachhead for the for U.S. Army uh, operations on the African continent, at least in West Africa, because they already have the base in Djibouti. Yeah, I mean, when the next when the next war pops off over the African resources, they're gonna have a strong base there. They gonna have a base have right a there, strong presence in in Ghana. And I, I mean, to me, I mean, this is like Kwame Nkrumah and George Padmore and Dubois. These, you know, all secretary and they must be turning over in their graves. To say, how can y'all allow this? Well, it's like, like you said, um, the ancestor, Dr. John Henry Clark said, all history is a current event. All history is a current event. This is exactly why we know it was some conspirators in the mafia. The same way that these Negroes, after, after everything they've seen, their whites have done. Right are conspiring with these whites now. Right. It's the same way some of our brothers and sisters in those times in history conspire with them in the reason why we're here now. Oh, no, there's there's no question about it. But, you know, the thing of it is, is that these guys have no, they, they one, they have no shame. Number two, they know that even within their countries, there's only a small group of people that might even be opposed to it. And, you know, so a friend of mine was telling me, well, you know, uh, Ghana, they, they have their own country. They, 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 
you know, they own their own land and they, they, they're independent. On I said, how independent are you if you have a foreign military operating out of your country? Exactly. How in how I mean, look, you have seen with everything that the it's not that these people they don't have to go back and look at at films of Hitler and Mussolini. And it's not like they can't say no to it. It's not like they can't say no to it. They 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 have seen what has happened. All these guys, all these presidents, these guys ha have been alive. They saw what happened in Iraq. They 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 saw what happened in Libya. They they, they see what's happening in Somalia. They see what's happening in Syria. They see these things taking place. They see there was a report we put out uh, on African Liberation Media about how violence has increased in African countries since, the, since Barack Obama, the black president, expanded AFRICOM. He expanded AFRICOM exponentially. It was formed under George uh, W. Bush. But Barack Obama took it to a whole different level to be operating in 33, 35, 40 African countries, which was unimaginable under Bush. But here comes the wolf in sheep's clothing and all these African, you know, uh, presidents are like, you know, uh, you know, uh, sucking hind tit. And they are they giving this guy access. What do you think is going to happen? And, and even with all of those examples that you named, the biggest example to African people in Ghana should be Elmina and Cape Coast. It should be. Sitting, they're sitting if right there look looking at it every there, day. Right. And you see it. But you know what? When I was there. To them, there's not even sacred ground. And I won't say all. I, I'll never be all <laughs> inclusive. But, you know, people play around there. It's like it's a normal beach. And it's not sacred enough to where it should be kept in a certain spirit to where this is a, this is sacred ground and we'll never forget what happened to our ancestors. And we'll use this as a tool to remember why we should never trust the European. Exactly. And, and, and okay, so, so you got Cape Coast and Elmina. And what about Operation Cold Chop? What about that? Uh, but, but see, that's another example of why they didn't even learn from Cape Coast and Elmina. <laughs> <laughs> because you allowed the CIA to come in with an operation to overthrow the president that was trying to lead you towards sovereignty. Exactly. Overthrow, overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah organized, organized by President Lyndon Johnson and his, and his CIA to overthrow Kwame Nkrumah because Kwame Nkrumah posed a tremendous threat to their power. And so here you have all of these examples, all of these examples right in your face. And you are allowing them to set up a logistics hub right there in Accra. Yeah, I'm just reminded of Bobby Wright um, in his classic book, The Psychopathic personality and other essays uh, where he you know, articulate what you brothers are describing that genuine insight into the European behavior results in no correlating change on the part of the African. No change. Psychopathic racial personality. Yes sir. In other essays. This has been the African Liberation Media Podcast. Brothers and sisters, you can join us on AfricanLiberationMedia.com where you can have access to all of our podcast shows. You can also catch us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you can also stay up to date with us on social media at African Liberation Media. BB for Hodier. BB for BB for Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes, does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated 
and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.